Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Daisy Cousins Show. I'm Daisy Cousins, and I am thrilled to be right here on ADH-TV every week, twice a week, for your viewing pleasure. And boy, do we have a cracker of a show for you tonight. Joining me this evening is the director of the Center for Indigenous Training, the eminent Wesley Aird, to chat about the nefarious intentions behind the architects of the Indigenous Voice to Parliament, as well as his highly successful appearance on the ABC's Q&A on Monday night. But first, chaos has erupted in US politics land this week, with Republican Congressman Matt Gatz moving what turned out to be a successful motion to oust House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Gates, along with seven other Republicans, voted with the Democrats to bump the Speaker, citing McCarthy's broken promises on cutting government spending. It's the benefit of this country that we have a better Speaker of the House than Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy couldn't keep his word. He made an agreement in January regarding the way Washington would work, and he violated that agreement. We are $33 trillion in debt. We are facing $2.2 trillion annual deficits. We face a de-dollarization globally that will crush Americans, working class Americans. Kevin McCarthy is a feature of the swamp. He has risen to power by collecting special interest money and redistributing that money in exchange for favors. Uh, we are breaking the fever now, and we should elect a speaker who's better. So now whether Matt Gates undertook this crusade because he was genuinely concerned about government spending or because he has a personal vendetta against Kevin McCarthy and is addict addicted to the limelight depends on who you ask. Either way, it's just the latest instalment in the enthralling, infuriating reality TV show that is American politics. And that's not the only new episode on the cards. Most of you will know that former President Donald Trump is currently being hounded by the Democrats by means of open lawfare. He was hit with four indictments in quick succession, the most recent couple of which involve whether or not he incited the Capitol riot of January 6, 2021, and whether or not he defrauded the American public by claiming the election was stolen and taking steps to rectify that in 2020. Now, as to whether Trump should be indicted for simply exercising his constitutional right to free speech and, as a candidate for president, his right to contest the results of an election, which really is all Trump did, I think any reasonable-minded person can conclude there's not much of a case there. And as for whether he incited a crowd to violence, here is Donald Trump instructing his supporters on January 6th to march peacefully and patriotically towards the Capitol. Do the right thing and only count the electors who have been lawfully slated, lawfully slated. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Today we will see whether Republicans stand strong for integrity of our elections. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. If specifically asking people to march peacefully is inciting violence, well, we really have fallen into the 1984 Orwellian world of lies becoming truths. However, the latest court case against Trump, a civil case, is even sillier. Donald Trump is currently being sued, along with his sons, Eric and Donald Jr., by New York Attorney General Letitia James, a Democrat, for 250 million US dollars for allegedly fraudulently inflating the value of Donald Sr.'s properties to get better loan terms and lower insurance premiums. premiums. Now, these accusations stem from claims made in Congress by Michael Cohen, Trump's former lawyer, who, remember, was convicted of lying to Congress on another occasion. As outlined by Joel B. Pollack in Breitbart News, 
Cohen alleged that Trump inflated the values of his real estate properties, which are estimates in any case, in obtaining real estate loans from banks against those properties. The judge agreed, ignoring the fact that the banks almost certainly did their own due diligence investigations before making those loans, and disregarding the fact that no bank lost money on the loans. It did not matter that there was no injured party, exaggeration itself was enough. Here's where we get to the first head-scratcher in this case. As Breitbart reports, there is no injured party. There is no bank or other lending body claiming they have been defrauded. And in fact, all the loans given to Trump were repaid, as Trump himself highlighted outside the courtroom. Banks loved our business, they loved our deals, they weren't defrauded, they lost no money, they made money, they had the finest attorneys that there are. Frankly, their attorneys were better than my attorneys. And uh, they made a lot of money, and they considered me a very good client. I paid them back on time, on schedule. There was no default. They never even sent me a default letter. Not one, for years, never got a default letter. And there's no case here, there's no victim. The banks aren't a victim. The insurance companies are a victim. Everybody got paid. Now, the irritating thing for Donald Trump is New York law is different from a lot of other states when it comes to its requirements to take someone to court for fraud, as outlined by law attorney Jonathan Turley. The problem that he has is this New York law, that the New York law is different from most uh, jurisdictions. He's been prosecuted in what's called a, a Section 6312 action. You don't need to show intent to defraud, and you don't need to show that people lost money. And I think a lot of people will look at that and go, well, why have all of these proceedings, this huge effort, if no money was lost? All of which is very, very convenient for Democrat New York Attorney General Letitia James. She, of course, posed for the cameras outside the courtroom and gave this nauseating spiel. My message is simple. No matter how powerful you are, no matter how much money you think you may have, no one is above the law. And it is my responsibility and my duty and my job to enforce it. According to the Democrats, no matter how powerful you are, nobody is above the law unless your name is Joe Biden. In any case, the integrity Letitia James implies she has through that little soundbite and the credibility of the case she's brought against Trump are greatly undercut by her behavior back in 2018 when she was running for attorney general. See, a large component of Letitia's election campaign focused solely on, believe it or not, suing Donald Trump. He should be charged with obstructing justice. I believe that the president of these United States can be indicted for criminal offenses. And we would join with law enforcement and other attorneys general across this nation in removing this president from office. In addition to that, the office of attorney general will continue to follow the money because we believe that he's engaged in a pattern and practice of money laundering. I say one, I say one name, Donald Trump. That should motivate you. Get off your ass and vote. Will you, will you sue him for us? Oh, we're going to definitely sue him. We're going to be a real pain in the ass. He's going to know my name personally. I'm a From my reading of the situation, this is the type of person who would clutch at straws to fabricate anything she could have a go at Trump for, even if there is no injured party, and even if, as in the, this case, the valuation of Trump's properties that were given to banks were only ever an estimate, and, as Joel B. Pollock pointed out, the banks would almost certainly have done their own due diligence on those estimates. Now, speaking of Donald Trump's property valuation, that brings us to the other clown in this circus, Judge Arthur Engoron, also a Democrat, who is presiding over this silly case. In a surprise summary judgment last week, he ruled Letitia James had effectively proved her case before the defense had even mounted its own case. 
Engeron found Trump and his company deceived banks and insurers by exaggerating the value of his assets and net worth in paperwork used to secure finance. This all sounds rather serious, until you consider one of the assets Trump has supposedly overvalued is his sprawling Mar-a-Lago estate in Palm Beach, Florida. Engeron, citing a local Palm Beach County official, ruled Mar-a-Lago had a value of between 18 million and 27 million US dollars. He also rejected Trump's experts' valuation that Mar-a-Lago was worth one and a half billion dollars. Now, Mar-a-Lago is set on 20 acres of land, that's about eight hectares, it has oceanfront views, and is situated on a street colloquially known as Billionaire's Row. Anyone with even a basic knowledge of real estate would know valuing the property as low as just $18 million is an absolute pittance of its actual value, especially when you consider the value of the other properties in the area, as pointed out by Fox News host Sean Hannity. A two-acre, now Mar-a-Lago's 20 acres, we'll give you the details on that in a minute, but a two-acre vacant lot, only minutes from Mar-a-Lago, it's now currently listed for a very low $150 million. Another $150 million for two acres of dirt with no house uh, on a waterfront lot. Another two-acre plot of land nearby, waterfront again, the lot, the dirt, $200 million. Again, no house on it. Mar-a-Lago is an iconic 60,000 square foot zone residential, also historic landmark, mansion, and it has a club legally associated with it. It has a whopping 58 bedrooms, 33 bathrooms. It's located on 20 acres of prime Palm Beach real estate with a really unique position. Why? Because it has both the intercoastal waterway and oceanfront beach. Now, oceanfront uh, homes uh, literally are a fraction of the size of Mar-a-Lago without access to the intercoastal waterways are currently selling uh, anywhere between 100, 150 million, some cases 200 million. Considering all of that, it wouldn't seem a stretch to estimate a property like Mar-a-Lago is worth one and a half billion dollars. What is a stretch is asserting it's valued as low as $18 million, which Judge Engeron has done. So, we have a Democrat judge, a Democrat attorney general who ran on a platform of getting Donald Trump, a civil fraud case where nobody is actually claiming they've been defrauded, and nothing to prove Trump ever recorded so much as a payment default to the banks involved, and yet this case is still pressing ahead? And believe it or not, the cherry on top of all of this is that earlier this week, the judge threw out all transactions cited in the case that occurred before 2014 because of statute of limitations concerns. That is about 80% of the case. Therefore, this case could have been brought more than 10 years ago and yet it's only rearing its ugly head now. Why? Well, for the same reason the other four indictments have popped up one after the other. It is a crude attempt to keep Donald Trump from running for president. It is all but a surety that Trump will be the Republican nominee. According to the 538 poll aggregator, he is streaks ahead of his nearest rivals. As for how he compares to Joe Biden should he run, well, depending on which poll you look at, Trump is either just ahead, just behind, or neck and neck. The Democrats know they do not have a sure shot at winning in 2024 if Trump runs, so they are orchestrating a conga line of court cases to keep him off the campaign trail, in the courtroom, and even, potentially, in jail. And yet Joe Biden, shady business deals and all, is doddering around as usual. Nothing to see here. This is not the behaviour of people who think they can win fairly. This is just the start 
of the 2024 steel. Well, the referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament is just over a week away and the latest poll is in with an interesting result. According to a recent Guardian Essential poll, 49% of respondents intend to vote no, which is down two points from two weeks ago, while 43% will vote yes, which is up two points in two weeks. 8% are unsure. Now, this is not unexpected as the campaign enters the final stretch. Obviously, Obviously the, the undecideds are going, going to fall one way or the other. And the Yes campaign has certainly thrown a lot of money into its recent propaganda effort. Whether it will be enough remains to be seen. According to the polls, the Yes vote still has quite a bit of ground to make up before it can claim that double majority victory it needs to win. But as the saying goes, complacency is the enemy of the good, and I would urge all you no voters out there not to get complacent. The Yes campaign can still win this, and nowadays a week in politics land is an eternity. One who knows this very well is voice architect and Indigenous campaigner for the Yes Vote, Noel Pearson. Now, he's been doing the media rounds over the last few days and has made a few comments that range from hyperbolic to downright alarming. One such piece of hyperbole was this doom narrative about a potential no vote on 3AW with Neil Mitchell. It looks like being defeated. As several people have said, doing nothing is not an option for the reasons yeah. you've just, just described. What is Plan B? We We're, need Plan B. There is no Plan B. Mate, I've been at this for 30 years, working on these problems from the ground up, and I'm telling you that there is no Plan B. No will be a disaster for all of us. We will all lose, including the no campaigners. Now, this, obviously, is a ridiculous assertion. Of course there's a plan B, and it starts with, as Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians, uh, Senator Jacinta Price has suggested, an audit of the money being spent on Indigenous Australians to make sure it's going to the right places. Additionally, Federal Nationals Party leader David Littleproud put forward what I thought was a rather good plan B a couple of weeks ago when he suggested bespoke plans for different Indigenous communities. We need a 2023 intervention, an intervention in Canberra, taking the bureaucrats out of Canberra and sitting around the town halls and sitting around the campfires with the elders and state and local governments and federal governments making sure that they design bespoke programs for each one of those communities. And that there has been, uh, that has been achieved in some communities, but it hasn't been consistent because we're falling into this trap of thinking we send people to Canberra and it'll all work. When you send people to Canberra, our bureaucrats in Canberra generalise and then they nationalise programs and it doesn't work. There has been a generosity of financial support for Australians. Over $4 billion has been spent in, in the last financial year in programs, but they haven't been targeted to the local community. Empowering a local elder in those communities, designing a local program, actually has buy-in by those local communities. Yeah. Noel Pearson belligerently insisting there is no plan B is not only an obvious attempt at guilt tripping, it smacks of the arrogance of the Yes campaign, as if their way of thinking, and theirs alone, is the only way to rectify Indigenous disadvantage. This mentality was further emphasised when Pearson talked about the precipice that would apparently manifest in the event of a no vote. What if it's a no vote? In the event of a no, that's a precipice. I'm telling you, this side of the vote, that's an absolute abyss for Australia. There will be heartbreak. There will be absolute despair from people who know that without this reform, 15 years in the making, you cannot see progress ahead. Calm down, Noel. However, Pearson's hyperbole on 3AW paled in comparison when stacked next to the quietly alarming things he said on Q&A on Monday night. See, for the entirety of The Voice campaign, Australians have been led to believe the purpose of The Voice is to rectify Indigenous disadvantage. 
Now, this is a worthy goal. Very few people would argue the current situation is acceptable. The disagreement is over the best way to help those who are suffering. As such, one argument put forward by the No campaign is that permanently enshrining an Indigenous voice to Parliament into the Constitution would permanently enshrine Indigenous disadvantage into Australian society, as it would facilitate a constant need for problems in order to give the voice something to do. This argument was outlined by Q&A panellist and No supporter Wesley Aird, who is the director of the Centre for Indigenous Training. What The Voice is going to do is going to lock disadvantage into the constitution in perpetuity. And I, I really struggle with that as you, an Indigenous person. You think it will do that? I, it's, if, it's set up, if, it's set up to, if it's set up to make it so that we always have this... Uh, I don't know, way to express our... We'll be speaking to Wesley in a minute. Now, just prior to this, Wesley Aird pointed out a very inconvenient fact for the Yes campaign, which is that the majority of Indigenous people in Australia are not, in fact, disadvantaged. It, it comes across as if we're trying to fill a void. Um, and we miss the point that we're trying to do this to overcome Indigenous disadvantage. But well, it's one of the reasons. It's one of the reasons. <clears throat> As an Indigenous person, what I struggle with is that, um, you know, two-thirds of Indigenous people live in New South Wales and Victoria combined. 80% uh, of Indigenous people, you know, live pretty mainstream lives. We have horrible, horrible disadvantage. But we've talked tonight about the numbers in the House and in the Senate and the process. Um, I, you know, I, I struggle with that... We're not actually talking about overcoming disadvantage and every, every jurisdiction in Australia has got an Indigenous Affairs Department. Every department has got an Indigenous advisory function. Every big corporate has got, you know, like a reconciliation action. Now, these two rather inconvenient truths put forward by Wesley Ed likely would have had Noel Pearson quietly panicking, which might account for the word salad of an answer he gave when asked to demonstrate that indigeneity has nothing to do with race. How, how is it not? It's, no? it's peoples who pre-existed colonisation. You're going to have to explain there, that. Sorry, I don't There are blonde and blue-eyed Indigenous people in yeah. the Arctic Circle. We're not in the Arctic it Circle. It doesn't matter. This is, the, this this is, is a constitutional not a alteration for this Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Whether there were peoples who pre-existed colonisation by the British, yeah. they were Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander yes, peoples. Yes, they yeah. And it's a recognition yeah. of that historical truth. OK. So the but, races but, we're talking about but, are Aboriginal... The, as he went on to say, the races we're talking about are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. Indigeneity certainly has a lot to do with race. But it was this next interaction between Pearson and Ed that I really think is cause for alarm. Torres Strait Islander. The recognition is not just about disadvantage, it's about our languages, yeah. our culture, our yeah. history. But it's also about um, how mainstream we are and, and our culture. And there, Noel Pearson betrays the real agenda of the Yes campaign. You heard him yourselves. Enshrining an Indigenous voice to Parliament in the Constitution is not merely about improving the lives of Indigenous people. It's about permanently changing the fabric of Australian society to give Indigenous elites cultural and legal power that other Australians don't have. Now, this is right in line with what's outlined in the extra 25 pages of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, the document that outlines the intentions behind the voice. The unfinished business, the document says, of Australia's nationhood includes recognising the ancient jurisdictions of First Nations law. With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this surviving and underlying First Nations sovereignty can more effectively and powerfully shine through as a fuller expression of Australians' nationhood. The law was violated by the coming of the British to Australia. This truth needs to be told. 
Now, the law the statement refers to doesn't mean Australian common law. It means, to again quote the document, the ancient jurisdictions of First Nations law. When voice architects like Noel Pearson say the voice is a massive opportunity for the country and that Indigenous people have lots to contribute in addition to, as Wesley Ed so rightly pointed out, what they already contribute to society, it appears they mean it's an opportunity to initiate this First Nations law, a separate law or legal system that affects and governs only Indigenous people. The voice is not just about recognition or overcoming Indigenous disadvantage. Noel Pearson said so himself. This is simply a power grab by an elite Indigenous activist class with a superiority complex who hate Australia and want to gut its constitution. The question remaining is, will Noel Pearson and his cohort be able to fool enough Australians with their hyperbole and emotional blackmail in order to get this dangerous, undemocratic, racist voice to parliament over the line. Joining me to discuss all of this and more is Director of the Centre for Indigenous Training, Wesley Aird. Wesley, it is so fantastic to have you on the program this evening. How are you? Hello, Daisy. I'm, I'm really well. Thank you. Excellent. Great to have you here. Now, I loved your appearance on Q&A on Monday night. I thought you were fantastic and you raised some really excellent points that simply don't get enough airtime um, for the No campaign, especially on the ABC. Now, um, you stated on Q&A that with the attempt to implement The Voice, it felt like we were trying to, quote unquote, fill a void in the nation rather than to address disadvantage. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that for our viewers? Well, there's been a bit of a catchphrase, you know, if not now, when, and, you know, this is going to bring about better health, better education. I, I've seen the billboards around town. Mm. The bit that fascinates me is that, and, and I, I made this point on Monday night on Q&A, is that every jurisdiction has got an Indigenous Affairs Department. Every other department has got an Indigenous Affairs Advisory Body or Function or Committee or, or, or Liaison Officers. Um, all the corporates have got, you know, reconciliation action plans. They've got uh, so many ways to engage and, and, and deliver culturally appropriate services. So then when I hear the, you know, the no campaign saying, oh, you know, we're not heard, we don't, we don't have a voice, I, that's, that's not quite what my research shows me when I go Googling, you know, all over the, the government departments for, for how Indigenous concerns are, are, are being taken into consideration in service delivery. Mm, it, exactly. I mean, you yourself were an advisor to John Howard uh, uh, back in the day. I yep. mean, that's just one example of an Indigenous voice to Parliament, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And um, after that, uh, there were there were other uh, functions, if you like, you know, with 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 the with the Rudd government, um, and then Turnbull when he was a prime minister, he and, and Tony Abbott. There have been advisory bodies, but it's it's not just at that very high level to the prime minister. You know, it, um, it's also happening across every jurisdiction as well. So I, I, I'm not quite sure how we're going to, to get technical expertise at a national level because overcoming Indigenous disadvantage requires, um, you know, people are going to have to address some really economically, geographically, socially complex problems. So we are going to need the best problem solvers in the country to work on these issues. Well, absolutely. And uh, I mean, a, a nationalised, generalised approach, and we'll talk about that later in the interview, for, for my money, doesn't, doesn't seem to quite make sense when you have so many communities and very complex problems. Um, and look, as I, yeah. I mentioned in my editorial, uh, you pointed out on Q&A as well what I think is quite an inconvenient fact for the Yes campaign, which is that the vast majority, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you said about 80%, of Indigenous people actually live quite mainstream lives and aren't disadvantaged. What use do those Indigenous people have for an Indigenous voice to Parliament? Well, it's 
it's going to be really interesting to see um, how many, if the voice gets up, how many Indigenous people participate because I, I actually think, you know, and I actually work in, in native title and cultural heritage in a, in a part-time role, um, not all Indigenous people, you know, are, are practice or, or, you know, it's not obvious that they are expressing their culture on a, on a, on a regular basis. I mean, they, they, they could well be just going about their lives, getting on with their day-to-day job in a mainstream job in a mainstream suburb, um, there's plenty of opportunity, you know, at parties or at the football or whatever else to, you know, catch up with your cousins or your or your family and you know, reaffirm that that cultural attachment. But but a lot of Indigenous people really do lead very mainstream lives. And and Daisy, you, you're right. I, I, you know, depends on how you slice and dice it. But up to eighty percent of of Indigenous Australians live in metropolitan metropolitan areas. Um, regional towns, they've got access to all of the services that everyone else has got. Uh, their kids have got, you know, a fantastic choice of schools mostly uh, because they've got access to everything that Australia's got to offer. Mm, it, which should be being celebrated, I, I always think. I mean, it's yeah. none of us can deny Well, well that... it is. Well, it is. Yeah, yeah you, you're right. It, 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 it is. You know, you, um, you can't get on an aeroplane or go through an airport or go to a big football event or a convention or a conference with, without uh, recognition of, of Indigenous people as, as the prior occupants of the, of the continent. That's, that's very true. And on the subject of, of Welcome to Country, um, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I have no problem to welcome to country. I think in the right context, like, for instance, the opening of Parliament, um, it's very tasteful and appropriate. I like the opening of Parliament because you have recognition of our Indigenous history with the welcome to country and also recognition of our Anglo-British history with the Lord's pe- Prayer. I think in that context, it's lovely, big official events, all of that. But, I, I mean, nowadays, not only do you have welcome to country every time a plane lands, but I, I've been literally to professional and also community theatre events. This is theatre where the welcome to country is read out before the curtain even goes up and the overture plays. Do you think that kind of rampant pushing on it um, is exhausting for people and perhaps even dilutes the, the symbolism of it? Daisy, I think it does dilute it a bit. We've, we, and the issue for me is are the event organisers properly qualified to work out whether or not they're even getting the right people? Um, What we know that Australia had a very brutal history during settlement Mm. in a lot of areas, um, you know, people struggle a bit with with, uh, Indigenous people uh, in, in their language has been disrupted, the transmission of cultural knowledge has been disrupted, and in some areas, like Brisbane, um, the federal court has said that there are no traditional owners for the Brisbane area. Now, if it's good enough for the federal court, it's good enough for me. And yet, uh, here in Brisbane, we are having welcomes and acknowledgements all the time uh, for people that are not recognised by the federal court. So if, if we just want to call it a performance and treat it as a performance, I'm absolutely fine. But I think we have to be honest in what it is that we are, or, you know, what the event organiser is procuring and and what message we're sending and then how we think about that. And, you know, there are times when it probably church services, um, you know, um, observation of things like Anzac Day where, where I think maybe the focus should be on the reason everybody showed up and, and it's okay sometimes to not have a welcome, in my opinion, if, if you want to really, as you said, you know, when you're going to, to a live um, performative art piece, in, you know, in, in, in the arts world, um, keep the focus on the performers. Mm, yeah, exactly. It's struck me lately. It, it sort of seems to be everywhere, and I, I do think it dilutes yeah. what, what is quite a really quite a nice tradition. Um, now, interestingly yeah. enough, 
Um, one of the arguments I've heard from the Yes camp is that the voice to parliament has nothing to do with race. I mean, at your wonderful appearance on Q&A, uh, Patricia Carvelis and Noel Pearson both tried and failed to make that point. Um, and I've also heard others like Sky News' Chris Kenny make that argument as well. But how can anyone make that argument with a straight face? Oh. Daisy, I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss. And, you know, I said to Noel the other night, you know, could you please explain? Because in, ni in 1967 we took, you know, we, we addressed the race, the race issue in the, in the Constitution. Um, you know, we have heard uh, some very prominent um, uh, yes campaigners complain that to say no is, or, you know, that the, the arguments are racist. So I'm not quite sure how it is that, race can only apply to one side of the campaign. Uh, we are actually talking about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. That's it. No one else. We're not talking about anyone from any other country. Um, and we don't actually know the full number of who is or who isn't Indigenous. Uh, the Australian Bureau of Statistics has got one figure. That's contested. Um, you know, we know from... The New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council's experience that um, it's very common for locals to dispute some other locals' claim. So I, I, you know, we are talking about only Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and uh, at some point, if this gets up, someone, somebody's going to have to write a list. Uh, that's going to be quite a daunting task for anybody. Absolutely. And, and as you rightfully mentioned, there is some contention over who is and who isn't of Indigenous heritage. Yeah. So in the hypothetical world where the voice gets up, and as I said in my editorial, it, it still might. You know, a week is an eternity yeah. in politics land. They do have time yeah. to turn it around. Um, if it gets up, there's been no discussion, has there, from Anthony Albanese on, uh, on how you would actually well, for lack of a better word, qualify someone as Indigenous in order to actually run for the voice. I mean, that, that, that's a, a massive impracticality, isn't it? It, it, it is. Um, which is why I think if we financially incentivise this identification by race, then we're going to get all sorts of people putting their hand up when actually they might be better served by a mainstream service or maybe they don't even need special service at all. So, and I said the other night, you know, we should fund need, not race. I, you know, I think that would be the egalitarian thing to do and it might actually um, be more efficient, a, a more efficient use of taxpayers' money. It might actually overcome Indigenous disadvantage sooner, mm. which is what I'd like to see. And you know, you, you rightfully point out that it's going to be a an administrative uh, quagmire if, if it gets up, how to implement it. And while that's happening, I think people are going to be distracted from actually helping those in need on a day-to-day -day basis because uh, whilst most of us are living mainstream lives, there are a lot of Indigenous people that are really, really in need of, of special assistance. Yes, exactly. Um, and again, you know, we can all agree that people who are suffering are the ones who need to be help, helped. And you actually, you made a very interesting point that I, I liked that we should be funding based on need rather than race, because it speaks to something that I've always hypothesised, not just with Indigenous Australians, but also, for example, with yeah. Black Americans and Native Americans, for instance, that the great thing I think that divides people in society isn't actually race or, or gender or sexuality or anything like that, it's class. So these problems yeah. that Indigenous Australians who are disadvantaged face really stem from economics and economic class, you know, poverty, welfare dependency, all of that kind of thing. Yeah. Do you think if it was more of a, a class-focused, I hate to sound like a Marxist here, but <laughs> class-focused um, rather than race, uh, that could be beneficial? Yeah, but, Daisy, it doesn't even have to be that focused because, you know, when you think about 
the majority of, the overwhelming majority of Indigenous Australians are living in mainstream suburbs, you know, like your viewers will have Indigenous people living on their street in their suburb and could potentially access the same services as everybody else. So why would an Indigenous person need to then travel across town to go to an Indigenous, I don't know, health health centre when actually they the one just down the road that everybody else accesses could well be just as good and it mm. you know that might be, it could be the quality of the service that they should be after um, you know rather than uh, whether it's it's tailored specifically specifically for indigenous Australians yeah and, and it speaks doesn't it to this an idea that I think is quite toxic and I'd be interested in your perspective on it is the idea of intergenerational trauma the idea that you know trauma is 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 passed down through the generations um, based on our history I think that's just the most dangerous thing to be pushing particularly on young mainstream indigenous people who are at university and, and school and in in mainstream jobs um, do you think a lot of that maybe so-called intergenerational trauma is actually coming from activists who are Indigenous or otherwise who are telling Indigenous people they need to be feeling traumatised? There is a risk that that, that is what's happening. Mm. However, um, you know, settlement, as I said, was pretty brutal. It was. Um, culture has been badly disrupted. But I think there comes a point where we have to support people to exercise their self-agency. We have to say we can deal with the past. However, in the meantime, you know, what support do you need to be active in the economy, to go, to be going to school, to be going to work, uh, treating individuals as individuals and supporting them as individuals? I think it's dangerous when you you, you only talk about a whole demographic of people, um, that's, that to me is not how you overcome disadvantage uh, because I think, I think we've got to focus on one household at a time. You know, kids need a role model and they need to, to participate in society and the narrative should be supporting them. Mm. Yes, I, I completely agree with you. I think individualism really has to be the key here because, funnily enough, yeah. we're all different, you know, different life experiences, different yeah. situations. Now, look, one yeah. of the things that um, Noel Pearson said on Q&A that I found, it actually alarmed me, was that he said that the voice wasn't just about addressing Indigenous disadvantage. And I, I think we've all been led to believe that that was the whole point of The Voice was to address Indigenous disadvantage. And Noel Pearson also said, why wouldn't Indigenous people still have a constitutional voice to Parliament even after they've moved beyond their disadvantage? What do you think he means by this? Uh, I'm a little bit confused, Daisy, I think. <laughs> We, we, we need to be clear about why um, this referendum is being put to the vote. Um, is it to overcome disadvantage or is it to recognise Indigenous people? Now, you don't need a referendum to recognise people. You know, you and I talked about all of the, the little performances and, and um, you know, the, the, the messages that we get recognising prior occupation. So that's there. You don't need either legislation or a referendum to get that across the line. So it, it might be that um, that Indigenous people will actually need to be disadvantaged forever because that's actually what, what might be written into the Constitution. So maybe that's why it needs to be written in in perpetuity. Mm, it's 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 a ho it's a horrible thought, isn't it? I, I just find the whole thing so regressive. And now, look on the subject of solutions uh, to to the um, indigenous disadvantage. I mean, Noel Pearson was on Three AW talking about how there's no Plan B. Um, David Littleproud 
I actually had what I thought was quite a good alternative to The Voice, which had nothing to do with The Voice, but he suggested that we need to create bespoke plans for different communities by you know, moving the, well, flying the bureaucrats out of Canberra and into the bush to talk with and empower local elders rather than trying this uh, another nationalised, generalised approach. What do you think of that kind of solution? Uh, I'm not, not a big fan because if we're talking about the very remote and remote communities, our prospects are very limited when there is no economy. Mm. Um, you can pour a lot of money in, but at what point can a small remote community become uh, self-sustaining? How, how can you get people to be feeling good about themselves, to be active, to be, you know, proud of, of what they're going to do when they wake up in the morning? So a sedentary lifestyle um, in a remote community that has got no economy, uh, wow, that's 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 tough. That's mm. going to be really tough. And having because you know bureaucrats visiting, um, that's not going to put enough money through the community to to sustain a school, um, a workforce, and intergenerational uh, progress. Mm. So so the- we've got people. We've you know we've we've got people doing community development. Uh, all around the world, and you know, we we just have to be a little bit courageous in in thinking what is the future of of you know the remote communities and how what would it take to 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 make them self sustaining. So really, then, what you think we need to do is allow them the benefit of all the best bits of Western culture, so capitalism, commercialism, schools, uh, the right sort of education, etc. cetera, um, in addition to balancing keeping their cultural practices. But you think they need to be afforded all the best elements of Western capitalism in order to thrive and feel good about themselves? Yeah, to, to mm. be, to be um, lifted up, if you like, to be supported. Uh, but, you know, and this is something, Daisy, that I really struggle with. If, if we've got farmers, you know, graziers out west, mm. if the business doesn't work, then the government just doesn't come along and, you know, main, main, maintain their property and, and, and feed them, you know. Mm. I mean, yes, we have a welfare system in Australia. It's, it's, it's great that we do. Yeah. But welfare isn't, isn't a lifestyle. No, you know, Welfare no, exactly. is designed as, as a stopgap whilst someone is being supported mm. to get back on their feet and to get back up and running again. Exactly. So and um, when and you're well, on welfare... And welfare dependency, um, as we know, has terrible effects on, on mental health and, yeah. you know, can cause substance yeah. abuse and all those sorts of things. Um, Wesley, yeah. Ed, you're fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show this evening. I would really love to uh, talk to you pleasure. again. Okay. Thank you, Daisy. Thanks. Another day, another bunch of woke, ignoramus climate activists making royal fools of themselves while annoying the crud out of everyone else. Over the past year or so, viral videos of radical climate alarmist group Just Stop Oil have popped up fairly regularly. They've ranged from protesters throwing tomato soup on the glass casings of priceless artworks... Security. To that ever infuriating trick of blockading traffic. Interestingly enough, the general public seems to have finally had it with climate alarmists causing trouble, and some are taking steps to push back, like this frustrated gentleman. No, people got places to be instead of fucking wasting time. I'm not harming them. There's too many of us, mate. There's too many. Now. 
While there is no doubt blocking traffic and defacing artworks grinds my gears, the latest activity of Just Stop Oil has shocked me in ways I couldn't even imagine. As many of you will know, I come from a theatre background. Musical theatre, to be precise. In fact, in my home city of Brisbane, I recently finished a run of a musical where I was playing a 12-year-old Catholic schoolgirl competing in a spelling bee who believes God expects perfection as much as her parents do. I think the musical art form transcends all boundaries with a canon so broad, so diverse, there really is something for everyone. My theory is that everyone loves musicals, even those who don't just know which one they like the best yet. <laughs> As such, you can imagine my horror when I found out that Just Stop Oil protesters, those cretinist philistines, accosted the musical form the other night when they took to the stage on London's West End to disrupt a performance of Boubil and Schoenberg's musical masterpiece, Les Miserables. people. The only credit I can give them is that they managed to stage their noxious little protest in the middle of Do You Hear the People Sing, a revolutionary anthem in the musical's plot, which I'm sure they think is just so fitting for their supposedly noble cause. Although, of course, their cause is far from noble, particularly when you consider the performance was forced to stop early, cheating the audience out of the price of their tickets most of which would have paid a large sum of money to acquire them. In any case, five people were arrested and charged and have been released on bail. They are due to appear in court on the 3rd of November. Now here's the thing. I can scoff at their, tra at their traffic blockades. I can wag my finger at their artwork defacing and feel reasonably unscathed. But the minute they desecrate the sacred art of the musical theatre genre, it's personal. Ladies and gentlemen, consider me officially triggered. That's all we have time for tonight on The Daisy Cousins Show. I do hope you enjoyed the program as much as I enjoyed presenting it. Make sure you tune in next week and every week to ADH-TV. I'll be right here. Good night, world. I'll see you next time.